We're continuing in our series in Mark's Gospel this morning. Last week, Jeff preached from Mark 6. Um, Jesus is walking on the water, I believe, and healing. And today we're moving on to the next text in Mark 7, what's labeled probably in your uh, Bibles, Traditions and Commandments, or What Defiles a Person. Mark 7, 1 through 23 is the text. But before we read from the scriptures, let's go to our God in prayer. Let me pray. Uh, Gracious Almighty God, We ask that you would feed us through your word, that you would nourish us this morning through the life-sustaining message of the gospel. Um, For we do not live on bread alone, Lord. We live on the very word of God. And so would you fill us with a hunger for your word, that it may nourish our hearts and make us wise unto salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Mark 7, 1 through 23, would you please follow along with me as I read? I'll be reading out of the ESV. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him... With some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things do you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared, all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. This is the reading of the Word of God. Now, I'm not a betting man. I have been to Vegas once, and I'll admit I didn't gamble at all. I've walked past the slot machines and did my own thing. But if I could put money down on the one word that probably comes to our mind in light of this text, I would put money on the word legalism. You think I'd win any money? that? Maybe? Legalism? Is that the word that comes to your mind in light of this text? You see, legalism is that disease that we tend to most often attribute to the scribes and Pharisees whenever we come across these tension-suffused interaction between Jesus and his antagonists in the Gospels. Now, to be sure, 
just off the bat, the charge of being a legalist, if somebody were to say, you're just being a legalist, is very often, especially in Christian circles today, applied and tossed around so erroneously that anytime any Christian places a demand on another Christian, it's often shrugged off as legalistic chaff and contrary to grace. And that's a problem. So if I were to say to husbands in this room, quoting from Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Well, of course, we'd fail to do it perfectly, but I hope nobody would say to me, Andrew, you're being a legalist right now. It's being a real legalist calling us to love our wives as Christ loved the church. I hope nobody would say that to me because I'm quoting from the scriptures and rooting that in the gospel and in the person of Jesus Christ. That's just simply not legalism. But although we could talk all day about the common error today of misappropriating the accusation of legalism, the problem of legalism, the very problem that Jesus addresses in this text this morning is a real problem. And it's a real problem I would suggest that confronts you and I probably pretty frequently, maybe even every single day of our lives. So what is legalism? Well, in short, legalism is the uprooting of the law of God from the person of God. Let me say that again. The uprooting of the law of God from the person of God. See, anytime we implement regulations or rules, or I'm sure it could go by many names, especially man-made regulations, such as what the Pharisees are doing here, regardless of how good those rules or regulations might be, and then we use those regulations or rules as sort of an end to themselves, or an arbiter of salvation, we're functionally acting as legalists. I've heard it said before that legalist is someone who puts law in the role scripture assigns to grace. I think that's a good definition too. Legalism, at least at a grassroots level then, happens when we elevate our personal convictions on any number of issues, or maybe our application of scripture to the status of God's law and then marginalize others for failing to live up to our standards. Legalism very often tears apart the community too, because it forgets what's at the heart of God's law, namely the summary of God's law that Jesus gives in, the ten, or in, the, uh, in Matthew 22, love God and love others. Legalism severs the law of God from the spirit of the law. Legalism is so dangerous because in the process of regulating life, we completely miss the gospel. And we completely miss the God of the gospel. Moralism or legalism, moralism or externalism or other names that it goes by too, they're not the gospel. And in the process, they have the unfortunate effect of taking our eyes away from the gospel. But although Jesus attacks the scribes and the Pharisees in our text this morning for their legalism, we'll get into very shortly how that sort of works itself out, he doesn't thereby advocate what we would call antinomianism. Sometimes it's viewed as the exact opposite of legalism. That's not what he's going for. Instead, Jesus attacks legalism, and in, in one sense, in an indirect sense, he also attacks antinomianism by going deeper, by unveiling the root of our problems so that we would learn to go deeper in our worship. And that's the problem with legalism. It's antithetical to biblical and authentic worship because it removes our eyes, as does antinomianism, from the person that we're called and invited to worship. And so Jesus attacks legalism in our passage this morning, simply put, by diving us deeper into the gospel. 
I love what Sinclair Ferguson says on this. He writes, there's only one genuine cure for legalism. It's the same medicine the gospel prescribes for antinomianism, namely understanding and tasting union with Jesus Christ himself. And friends, that's precisely where Jesus leads us in this passage this morning. He drives us deeper into the gospel. He drives us deeper into the implications even of the gospel. And we see that done in three specific ways this morning. Three specific ways, of course, not four, not two, three, uh, that I believe the Holy Spirit wants to show us from this text. And those three things are, we're driven deeper into the gospel by underscoring, by Jesus underscoring the gravity of sin, by underscoring the grounding of the cross, and by underscoring the goal of heart repentance. So I'm going for alliteration there. I'm not quite sure if that worked, but gravity of sin, grounding of the cross, and goal of heart repentance. That's where we're going this morning. So very first, Jesus underscores the gravity of sin. Let me begin, though, by setting the stage for a moment, sort of understanding where we've been in Mark's gospel and where we are in Mark's gospel right now and why we're in the place that we're in in Mark's gospel right now. If you remember thus far through our journey in Mark, Jesus has already encountered the scribes and the Pharisees in a number of different ways, a number of different settings, mostly concentrated in chapters 2 and 3. In chapter 2, the scribes and the Pharisees, they confront Jesus over the issue of eating with tax collectors and sinners. And then later in that same chapter, the Pharisees confront Jesus over the actions of his disciples who are plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath. And then in chapter 3, there's sort of a watershed moment in the Gospel of Mark because the Pharisees and the Herodians, were told, start plotting together how they're going to kill Jesus because sort of the inciting incident of all of that is because he healed a man on the Sabbath. So we see already in the three chapters, the first three chapters of Mark, this building tension that has the, that has the smell, the inkling, that it's going to boil over pretty soon. And now, Jesus is again confronted with the scribes and Pharisees in our text, but now there's a new wrinkle at play. Apparently, the local Pharisees and scribes, Jesus is ministering up in Galilee still at this point in the north, the local Pharisees and scribes are apparently so fed up with Jesus that they're compelled now to call for reinforcements from Jerusalem, which is about 100 miles south. And I'm sure we can appreciate the implications of this. I heard a pastor liken this to the feds being called into town to deal with a local problem that's much too large for the local authorities to deal with. That's essentially what's going on here. The local scribes and Pharisees are just done with Jesus, so they need to call in the feds to deal with the issue. And presumably, these reinforcements of scribes and Pharisees get to work straight away. We read about in verse 2, chapter 7, calling out Jesus' disciples for not washing their hands, which is symptomatic of a larger issue of not walking according to what's called the tradition of the elders. Now, Washing regulations uh, are apparently a wider set of this problem of tradition of the elders. And it would be nice if the Pharisees and the scribes coming from Jerusalem were simply emissaries of the CDC, Center of Disease Control, and they're just coming into town to advocate good hygiene for the disciples, making sure they wash up to their elbows with antibacterial soap, sing happy birthday twice in your head to make sure you get a thorough washing, as my mother always taught me. It was a joke. They're obviously not doing that. What they're promoting isn't so innocent as simply promoting good hygiene. We read about this thing called the tradition of the elders that Mark tells us about. 
And this tradition of the elders was this elaborate system that was put in place over time as the Jewish people, the people of Israel, were forced to live among the people of the uh, the Gentiles, the people that weren't the people of Israel. And as they began to live among them, they devised all of these rules as a way to set themselves apart from the Gentiles and also a way of seeking to apply the law of God found in the first five books of Moses, the first five books of the Pentateuch. Apparently, they reasoned that the law of God found in the first five books of the Bible was, was a little bit too vague and they needed to implement more fences so that we could apply the law of God correctly. Ultimately, this morphed about 200 years after Jesus into what's called the Mishnah. If you've ever heard of the name Mishnah before, it's a uh, Jewish book of regulations and rules, sort of the fences around the fences, around the fences, around God's law. So it was an elaborate system of man-made fences that the Pharisees and the scribes prescribed. Now, one might think that trying to apply God's law isn't a bad thing. That's in fact, in many ways, a good thing. But the problem, as commentators note, is that while the intent of implementing this system to apply God's law in everyday life was good, ultimately what it did was serve to take the focus away from God, away from his law, and it set the focus on all of these disconnected and peripheral matters, which wasn't good. So immediately we begin to see in this text Jesus's tone. And this doesn't strike us maybe at the outset of the typical Jesus that we're familiar with from popular culture. Jesus is pretty harsh, isn't he? In verse 8, he calls them um, hypocrites. It's not an endearing term, is it? He calls them hypocrites. And then he directs the full force of this text from Isaiah, this text that was originally directed 800 years prior towards Israel's superficial worship. You see, Jesus rebukes the scribes and Pharisees, calling them hypocrites, because ironically... In the same breath that they claim to uphold the law of God, they're actually undermining the law of God. The ironic thing about the scribes and Pharisees is that even as they labor to uphold these man-made fences around fences around fences around God's law, which they've unquestionably dedicated their whole lives to, don't question the scribes and the Pharisees' commitment. They were dedicated individuals to their system. But at the same time, they uphold these plethora of fences. They at least functionally have a low view of sin. Think about it like this. If sin was merely a matter of external behavior, and the essence of sin, the very heart of sin, boils down to what we do or don't do, of course I'm not saying what we do or don't do is unimportant in any way, but if we really can avoid sin as at least the Pharisees were functionally prescribing by washing our hands and by observing all of these ceremonial rules. Well, then Pelagius, that early church uh, heretic who advocated an extreme form of works righteousness, was right. We can largely obey the commands of God without any real problem. But in verse 20, Jesus gets right to the heart of the issue. Gets right to the heart of the matter. Let me read from verse 20 real quick. And Jesus said to them, What comes out of a person is what defiles him, namely the heart. See, according to Jesus, our condition is far worse than the scribes and the Pharisees, at least functionally, imagined. Because when we look at the heart, the wellspring of sin, we meet the ugliness of our sin head on. And so then, building fences around the law of God and then measuring how good or bad we've been at following those rules might make us feel pretty good about ourselves, but it's disconnected from reality. 
because it turns a blind eye from the very nature of sin. It turns a blind eye away from the heart, no pun intended, the heart of the issue, the heart of the matter, the heart. You see, one of the, uh, one of the fastest growing religions today, if we can even call it that, looks completely different from the scribes and Pharisees. So we're dealing with the scribes and Pharisees and this intense form of legalism that we're talking about. But don't think we're immune or our culture is immune from the same problem. Because one of the fastest growing religions today, if we can even call it that, is a loose form of beliefs known as moralistic therapeutic deism. It's a belief system coined that name moralistic therapeutic deism was coined by a sociologist in the last 10 years called Christian Smith. And what Christian Smith did was he went forward to sort of study the American religious landscape, particularly among adolescents and youth. And what he witnessed was this disturbing trend whereby traditional orthodox Christianity was being watered down into this nebulous belief system known as moral therapeutic deism. And after studying sort of this, and don't think this is like a, we don't, nobody goes to a moralistic therapeutic deist church. It's not like the church of the MTDs. No, this is, this is a loose sort of nebulous belief system that people sort of unconsciously ascribe to. And after studying this, Christian Smith, he sort of summarized MTD into a five-point creed. And let me read you what the creed is of moralistic therapeutic deism. And it's a, this is a problem that I'm sure we've encountered in one way or another in the church and outside the church too. It's a popular belief system. First, moralistic therapeutic deism believes that a God exists who created and orders the world and watches over life on earth. Not entirely bad. But the second point is that this God isn't really involved in our lives unless we need him to solve a problem. Unless we need him for some reason, then we can call on God and he'll be there for us. Third, all this God expects of us is to be good, nice, and fair to one another, as the Bible says. Of course, don't judge each other. Fourth, the goal or the central goal of life, according to moralistic therapeutic deism, is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. And then finally, as long as you're good, nice, and fair to one another, maybe relatively or loosely moral, you're going to go to heaven when you die. Now, there are obviously several issues with moralistic therapeutic deism that we don't have time to dive into, but for our central purposes of where we're going with this illustration is that, like the Pharisees and scribes, like an, even an extreme form of legalism that we might encounter today, moralistic therapeutic deism also has an incredibly low view of sin. You see, sin is mostly behavioral because we're basically good people, and therefore it's just about tweaking a few things here and there in our lives. We don't need a God who deals with sin because we can largely deal with it by ourselves. And as long as we're good, nice, and fair to one another, then we'll have a prosperous life and we'll probably go to heaven when we die. So we can essentially see that with both the legalism of the Pharisees and the antinomianism of moralistic therapeutic deism, an extremely low view of sin resides. It's a view of sin that fails to see the wickedness of the human heart. And of course, we're not as bad as we could be, but even that is due to the grace of God, what we call common grace. But although many of us, I doubt, are card-carrying Pharisees or card-carrying MTDs, none of us attend the church of MTD, it's worth asking whether a low view of sin manifests itself in our lives in some form or another. Maybe in a sense, We're like the scribes and Pharisees who were so prone to police others that they came 100 miles north to make sure that the disciples and Jesus got their act together. So ask yourself this, even during this sermon, 
Are you predominantly thinking how well what I'm saying would apply to somebody else, to your brother or sister or other Christians maybe in our congregation than you are with dealing with your own heart? When we understand the gravity of sin, we understand that the heart is a wellspring of sin. Of course, we'll be concerned with others, but we'll also be acutely aware of the bent of our own hearts too. Another question to ask, what do you tend to elevate to the status of God's law and then judge others for not adhering to or keeping? Political convictions? Certain theological or doctrinal matters? You see, anytime we elevate our preferences or our convictions to the status of God's law, then we're subtly communicating the message to others that in order to be acceptable, you have to be like me. Sin, then, in this scheme, is a lack of conformity to my man-made rules, and in order to overcome them, you have to be more like me. But of course, that's a low view of sin that has the effect of making us incapable of loving other people, or even loving God. It's only if we have a deep view of sin, where we come to terms with the bent of our own hearts, when we'll finally be able to love others and then see why the cross is such good news. And that leads to our next point. Second, we're led in this passage to see, or to at least, this passage at least creates a hunger in us for the cross, the grounding of the cross. So in a sense, that last point we just talked about was sort of the bad news. That was the bad news of who we are by nature, sinners. Our sin is far worse than maybe we've ever even imagined or thought through. But don't worry, I'm not going to pray and conclude this here. We're going to talk about the good news too. It won't let us wallow in our sin and misery. We now have good news. And this good news is that at the same time Jesus gives us, he opens up this Pandora's box of bad news. We have foreshadowed in this passage how God is going to deal with that mess. I love how Paul Tripp puts it on this passage. He says that this passage marches us to the cross and defines the need for the cross. Primarily, it defines the need for the cross. If Jesus' diagnostic is correct, then there is no way for us to go but through the blood of Jesus Christ. And friends, that's precisely where this passage leads us. It's only if we take this passage as an isolated or disconnected unit from the rest of Mark, then we'll see that this really isn't a whole lot of good news. This is actually kind of a, taken by itself as an isolated unit, we might say that this passage is kind of a downer, isn't it? I mean, Jesus, the passage starts out with Jesus and this confrontation with the scribes and the Pharisees, Um, Then he rebukes the scribes and Pharisees pretty outright. And then he turns to his disciples and he bemoans their characteristic lack of understanding. And then he talks about uh, the, the human heart and just how corrupted by nature the human heart is. So see you later. Have, have a good day. (laughs) But of course, um, the rest of Mark shows us the fuller picture. The rest of the Mark, Marsta Mark, shows us the good news. And in the conflict that Jesus experiences between the scribes and the Pharisees in this passage, we have foreshadowed for us the conflict of the cross. If we were to take a step back for a moment and again, consider the entirety of Mark's gospel. We could, structurally speaking, split up Mark's gospel into two halves. The first half, Mark 1.1 through 8.26, is what we'll get through for... uh, I guess through May, when Jeff comes back, we're going to finish up the first half of Mark's gospel. And the first half of Mark's gospel is really Jesus' ministry in Galilee, Jesus' ministry towards the north, in the north. But the second half of Mark's gospel, 827 and following until the end, is Jesus' journey towards Jerusalem, his journey 
towards the cross. His journey towards bearing our sins on the cross. And so we're nearing the tail end of that first half of Mark's gospel. That tension is starting to fill the air. We're starting to wait for Jesus to turn his face to Jerusalem, and we're looking forward to the hope that's on the horizon. We're looking forward to when the only one who was pure in heart would go to the cross to purchase for us and our corrupted hearts life. This is the simple and profound message of the cross. Really, unlike the scribes and Pharisees who are prescribing all of these man-made rules and regulations on top of regulations, fences on top of fences, into this elaborate system, the cross is really simple, isn't it? It's beautiful, but it's a beautiful simplicity. But deeper worship happens, friends, when we see that simplicity, that profound simplicity of the cross. Deeper worship happens when we see through our low view of sin, we see the corruption of our hearts, and then we see the God who through Jesus Christ dealt with our corrupted hearts through regeneration. Deeper worship happens when we appropriate the simple message of the cross to our everyday lives. Deeper worship happens when we dive into the beautiful simplicity of the cross. Recently, um, I read through a theological memoir, essentially an autobiography of a famous theologian by the name of Thomas Oden. And the name of the autobiography is called A Change of Heart. And it's a fitting title because his autobiography centers around a fundamental shift that took place midway through his theological teaching career. Oden was essentially, uh, he grew up in Oklahoma, and he was essentially, he grew up in the Methodist church, began his theological career early, and the way Oden puts it is from the start of his, uh, his uh, Master's of Divinity through his PhD into his initial time as a lecturer and a teacher, he says, every turn in my life was a left-hand turn. Of course, what he means by that is every single turn he made was theological theologically liberal, a theologically liberal turn. But midway through his prolific theological career, God began to show him the catastrophic cracks in the foundation that he had been building upon. He was essentially appropriating every new and novel idea in um, broad theological terms, things related to psychology and um, and I can't remember the term he used for ethics, but a certain view of ethics that was all new and novel and so forth. And at one point, He was confronted about this. He was confronted by actually a Jewish man on the faculty who said outright to him, you are lecturing as a Christian, you are lecturing as a Christian theologian, and you know nothing about Christianity. And that led him to sort of a, a watershed moment in his life where he started to begin reading again about the, about, um, in the, in the historical fathers and the patristics, and he started looking into the beautiful simplicity of the cross as it was described in the early church and held on to in the Reformation and so forth. Odin eventually puts it, reflecting back on his life, he, puts, he summarizes his life like this. He says, my life story had two phases. One, going away from home as far as I could go, not knowing what I might find in the odyssey of preparation. And then at last, inhabiting anew my original home in classic Christian wisdom. The uniting theme of the two parts of my life can only be providence. For confessing Christians, it's a familiar story of a life unexpectedly turned around by an outpouring of grace. See, what Odin discovered in his journey was that moving away from the foundation of the gospel, the gospel that the early church proclaimed and the church held on to through the Reformation, moving away from that 
to an elaborate system of novel ideas only leads to deep spiritual anxiety. But to rest upon and to trust the simple message of the gospel and learning to apply that message to every facet of our lives leads to more deep and authentic worship. So do you know the gospel? Do you know what does it look like in your lives to apply the gospel, the simple message of the gospel, to every facet of your life? Are you trusting the simple message of the gospel? Jesus, in our text, creates a hunger, creates a longing for what he would eventually do on the cross. We see it foreshadowed in, in, in faint hues in our text this morning, but it points forward in the whole corpus of Mark, in the whole gospel of Mark, to the gospel event of the death and resurrection of Christ. And this leads to our final point. The third thing that we're pointing to for deeper worship in this passage is the goal of heart repentance. Let me take you on another journey in Mark's gospel, to the very beginning of Mark's gospel, specifically to the first words that Jesus utters in Mark's gospel. In Mark 1, uh, Mark 1 verse 15, Jesus says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. See, in light of the kingdom of God, God's rule and reign, which has come to earth in a unique eschatological way in Christ, in light of the inbreaking of God's rule and reign in Jesus Christ, Jesus calls right off the bat for belief and repentance, or repentance and belief. And as Luther reminds us, and the first thesis of thesis of the 95 theses is that when Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, he meant that the whole Christian life is to be one of repentance. And this is where Jesus is diagnostic in the heart at the end of chapter, at the, at the end of verses 20 and 23, at the end of this pericope we're looking at this morning. This is where his diagnostic meets the command to repent and believe in the gospel. But because of our nature, our sin nature, because our hearts are Pandora's boxes of sin, because, according to John Calvin, our hearts are perpetual factories of idols, a lifestyle of repentance that Jesus prescribes and gets at in our text this morning must go far deeper than simply behavior modification. True biblical repentance has to aim at the heart, understand the specific ways that sin manifests itself in our lives, and then learn what it looks like to apply the finished work of Christ in our lives, the gospel to our sin. So one way Jesus calls us then to go deeper in this passage, he calls us to go deeper by going deeper into sin. He calls us to go deeper by going deeper into the message of the gospel and the simple message that Christ, Jesus Christ and him crucified. We're also called to go deeper in our repentance. But this, of course, isn't always easy to do. I'm fairly certain that Jeff has used this illustration multiple times in the past, but I'm going to pillage it and use it once again because I think it so appropriately gets at what I'm getting at right here. And that illustration is, of course, from C.S. Lewis and The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, um, one of his works. And in that book, uh, there is a rotten boy that we meet named Eustace. And one day, Eustace, this boy, discovers a treasure trove on a deserted desert island comes across this treasure trove and is ecstatic of what he found. But, in order, but because he found this treasure trove, he has to pay a price for it. And that price he pays for it is to be turned into a dragon. As a result, 
of being a dragon, he's eventually cut off from all of his friends and family and becomes empty and alone. He can't even approach his friends and family without getting shot at by arrows. So he's alone and by himself on this deserted island, all alone as a dragon. But in his loneliness, along comes Aslan, the lion, that Christ figure in Lewis's work. And immediately, this boy dragon Eustace is gripped with fear. But with mercy and compassion, Aslan summons, summons Eustace, and he leads him up this um, winding road up on top of this mountain to a pool with water, clear water. And it's almost like Garden of Eden-like, where there's uh, foliage all around and fruit all around. And um, he, gets, he gets to the pool, and Aslan instructs Eustace to undress, meaning, of course, he's a, he's a dragon now. So take off your scales. Take off your scales and get in the pool. So Eustace, he begins to scratch at himself, and these scales that are on him begin to slowly fall away. But as layers and layers fall away, he realizes that this only exposes harder and tougher layers underneath the scales. And at this point, where Aslan tells Eustace, you're going to have to let me undress you, meaning, of course, you're going to have to let me take these scales off. So Eustace lies on his back, allowing Aslan to peel away the scales from him. But when Aslan goes to work, Unlike Eustace, it hurts. He goes deep. Eustace remarks that it felt like Aslan went even to his heart and how he tore away the scales. It was painful. It hurt worse than anything he had ever felt. Aslan went deeper, though, than Eustace was able. And as a result, in the end, Aslan throws Eustace into a pool of water, and Eustace is splashing around and realizes that he's a boy again. The scales have been removed. Friends, when we take Jesus at his word that the natural bent of our heart isn't good and that the Holy Spirit shows us specific way that's, the specific ways that sin manifests itself in our lives each and every day, it hurts, doesn't it? When he shows us our sin and convicts us in it, it very often hurts. None of us like seeing the ugliness of our sin. And very often when someone even gently prods or pokes us to reveal to us our sin, how much does every fiber in our being just want to lash out at them? We don't want to hear it. We don't want to take it. But deeper worship involves a deeper heart repentance. See, we can all, we can all confess objectively that, of course, our hearts are what Jesus says here. But how does that work itself out in your lives? Do you know yourself? Do you know the bent of your heart? And the way, as Calvin says, if our hearts are perpetual factories of idols, how does idolatry well up in your life each and every day? How do you form and fashion and create idols? Do you know yourself? Deeper repentance involves doing business with God as he pierces us deep to show us our sin. Because when our repentance goes deeper, our worship also goes deeper. So in conclusion, Jesus in this text, he directs, he uh, dissects the heart in a few ways in this passage. But in his evaluation, in his sort of opening up the wounds, opening up the heart to show us the sin nature that's inside every one of us, he doesn't leave us open, exposed, and naked on the operating table. The work of Jesus applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit draws us into a deeper appreciation of sin and repentance, yes, but it also drives us deeper to the source and the meaning and the wellspring of life and joy and hope, and that is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let me pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the gospel. <clears throat> we thank you for Jesus Christ and ask that as we leave here, as we, um, as we even consider right now of what it means to apply the gospel 
drive deeper into worship through the simple message of the cross, would you help us not leave those questions that we might have or convictions we might have? Help us not leave those here in the church walls, but to take that out in our daily walk this week and to live that out, to learn what it means in our lives to apply the gospel each and every day. Would you help us be people that don't go into defense mode when we're convicted with our sin, but learn to deal with it because, because Jesus has dealt with it, because we won't be cast aside in Christ. Show us Jesus Christ and him crucified with the same gospel that we trusted in for uh, our belief, for belief when faith when we came to Christ, be the same gospel that we cling to in our sanctification. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.